Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz. I'm a commissioning editor on the Arts Desk here. And I'm Al, the FT's food and drink editor. This week is our Christmas food and drink special. Al will be speaking to the great chef Cyrus Toddywalla. But before that, we'll be asking food writers Polly Russell and Tim Hayward about the ghosts of Christmas past. And we'll venture out into Borough Market, the epicentre of London's food scene, to ask stallholders if Christmas was better when they were six years old. Morning, Al. Good morning, Grizz. What day is it today? Today is my baby son Rufus's first birthday. Happy birthday to Rufus. Indeed, I think um, he was pretty excited during the night, um, decided to stay up on account of his great excitement of this day. It is a big day, actually. Um, it's not just, it is obviously just his first birthday, but there was there were a lot of times, particularly earlier in the year, that we thought he might not get this far. So it is it is a thing, and he's getting christened tomorrow. Oh, wow. I'm going to be wearing... Well, he'll be wearing a silly dress and I'm going to be wearing... You're not going to be wearing a silly dress. <laughs> um, or are you? No, uh, well, no, it's not a dress, but it is Rufus's great-grandfather's suit, which I've had fitted for me. And he he was a general and a very sort of distinguished fellow, so it's going to be a it's going to be a, a, a momentous moment. So wait, are you going to look like a, that you're part of the army? No, was it just a no, civilian full, suit? <laughs> I wish I was wearing full uniform with a sabre and everything, but no, it's just a, a rather distinguished dark grey three-piece tailored suit. Well, Rufus will um, be happy. You'll, you'll be looking both yeah. snappy. Well, I left him this morning while he was eating his birthday card um, <laughs> of, uh, of a fox. My own card, obviously, which is Snoopy, will arrive later. Um, it's a good time of year. In, in one way, to have a baby. I mean, it's terrible in most ways because it's freezing cold and you don't want your baby to be ill. Well, also, it's dark most of the time. No, exactly. The most, for almost every good reason, it, it, it's bad to have a baby at this time of year. But one good reason is that all the carol singing. And so last year, when he was in intensive care for so long, you could hear all these carols all the time. And they all seemed to be about him. The miracle boy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, I mean, I'm not comparing Rufus <laughs> to the son of to God. Jesus. Um, <laughs> No, he's but. much he's much better than Jesus. Before we move on, uh, okay. sorry, I just want to gauge how Christmassy you're feeling. Well, you love Christmas, don't you? I'm not a huge fan of Christmas actually, or Christmas food, which we'll be talking about later. So I wouldn't say I'm feeling that Christmassy. However, the studio does smell rather lovely because we are sitting here with a bowl of sa- Clement. Clementines. Clementines. Clementines, yes. obviously. If you read the Christmas food and drink special this weekend, that's made very clear to you in a lovely piece by B. Wilson. In fact, you should read the whole thing because it's a corny, co- it's a feast of Christmas joy centered and, on childhood. Yeah, and actually, and one of the 
well, what I think is one of the best pieces in your food and drink special is by Tim Hayward, who is going to be joining us in the studio, the FT's restaurant critic and food writer, and also Polly Russell, the FT's history cook. Indeed. We'll be looking back at ghosts of Christmas past. Now that we have the perfect Christmas available to us in shops, is it actually perfect? Was it better when we were younger? Was it better when we were six years old because we just still believed in Father Christmas? Have we lost something magical in to do with excess and eating too much and drinking too much? Are we all a bit too guilt-ridden about everything now? Okay, let's find out. Polly, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. (laughs) So we're talking about Christmas. Chris has already told us that she hates Christmas. Um, (laughs) But this is meant to be a joyful podcast. Controversial. (laughs) We have an image of the perfect Christmas in our heads. Tim, in your piece in this weekend's Christmas food and drink special, you talk about how the perfect Christmas can be delivered to your door now. But I'm interested in where does our concept of the perfect traditional English Christmas come from, Polly? Well, it has an incredibly long history. And if you trace back some of the traditions, they go back to sort of uh, of pagan days, pre-Christian days, sort of medieval periods. So the the Yule logs, the fires, the uh, evergreens, those have these incredibly long histories. You can trace back, you know, the mince pie to the medieval period. But our idea of Christmas, the kind of nostalgic, warm, cosy feeling that we have around Christmas, I think you can safely say was confected by the Victorians and in particular uh, Victoria and Albert. So what specifically, what what would we recognise about Victoria and Albert's Christmas that we have today? Prior to Victorian Christmas, Christmas was a feast for great groups of people, communities of people, the landowner and, you know, the, the people that worked for him. In the Victorian period, Christmas becomes very much kind of codified as a family event. And there's, that's kind of symbolised very much by that famous drawing of the royal family, the children and the Christmas tree. So this is They were the, the first of, to have a Christmas tree, weren't they? They were yeah. the first. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Dickens called it that new German toy. Uh, <laughs> they, invented, so, <laughs> they invented the Christmas tree, didn't they? They brought the tradition of the Christmas tree okay. to It was a German England. tree. It, it was, a, exactly. was a German tree. And then, of course, we didn't have Santa really until Coca-Cola reinvented him in about 1920. 20, wasn't it? I think that's it was, right. That so was, that's when he became recent. real. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when, he, when he went red and had the outfit and the jolly beard and all that kind of thing. For the rest of the time, I think he'd been Turkish and hit people with sticks and, and put them in scary. sacks or something. Very, very yeah, frightening. Really, really frightening. Yeah. Kind of. Thank God for Coca-Cola then. <laughs> listen, listen, I started running earlier this year and I haven't had any Santa gigs for the first time in about 10 years. This is terrible. I'm reduced to doing podcasts. We <laughs> <laughs> should say for the benefit of listeners that you do have a sort of whitish tinge to your beard. And yet he's so svelte. Explain <laughs> Thank you. Thank the you commission. Very much. <laughs> Well, I hope you won't do that again next year, Tim. I very, very much hope you'll be wearing the Santa outfit. You could be the FT Santa. So, Polly, are we right to think that with this new focus on the family, was this when Christmas became something, a festival for children and, and really a celebration of children? I don't think that the Victorians identified it as a particularly kind of child-focused festival, but the idea of the family is really important in the Victorian period, not least because this is a period in which the majority of people are poor, if not in poverty. And so ideas of the family and the kind of philanthropic ideas of kind of helping the family, thinking about the family as being really important to the nation, 
become very sort of powerful and the family becomes almost fetishized. So uh, Christmas becomes associated with the family, but also really important Victorian times. This is a period when you have a great expansion in the production of goods. So there's a lot of stuff to buy. People have got more money in sort of middle class, upper classes. So there's things to buy, toys, chocolate bars, all these things become associated with Christmas in this period. Tim, was your Christmas like that in the 1960s? <laughs> no, I, I think my Christmas in the 1960s was, was by most modern standards quite grim, I suppose. I, it's a strange thought. I became very obsessed a couple of years ago with this thing about Instagram and how we're really curating every single thing we put out. It's the first time I've done a sort of a nostalgic piece. And I actually started thinking about the things that I did care about. And they weren't the things I could put on Instagram. They really weren't. Because most of the stuff that, that felt really amazing and that I had the most marvellously warm feelings about in my childhood were pretty naff. There was stuff called Advocar, which was like yellow custard in a bottle that my nan used to drink. <laughs> and the smell of it for me is, is fantastically Christmassy. I couldn't put that revolting <laughs> mark on an, on an Instagram feed and say, yes, I'm having a marvellous family Christmas. <laughs> so we've kind of sanitised it or Instagramified it. I, I think we're in a new phase now where it's not just for us anymore and our families in that enclosure. For the first time ever, we've actually got sort of media right in the centre of all our family Christmases and we're pushing them back out. And that just changed changes the entire dynamic of what we're doing. So one question would be, though, if you had had Instagram in the 1960s, would your grandma not have been photographing the avocar or the baby shower? In other words, that at that moment was the thing that was identified as being the treat and delicious. And isn't that more a mark of that taste has changed and moved on rather than that th those things are intrinsically... Yeah, I, suppo I, suppose you I, mean? I suppose you're right. It just struck me particularly that, that, that so many of the traditions that are really fondly remembered in families are the ones that are actually inside and almost a little embarrassing. And I love <laughs> this idea of the invented tradition. In your piece, you have described the sort of Maris Piper potato and you kind of imagining it going back to the yeoman Maris mm. to the 14th century. <laughs> it turns out to be a 1960s kind of industrial potato. All of the Christmas traditions to me are... are kind of invented. But they are. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, almost apart from the boar's head, the yule log, which, who does that? Those are ye ancient times. Almost everything mm -hmm. else is a very recent history. Okay, so where, where does the traditional Christmas turkey dinner, where does all that come from? Where, why do we have all that? So the traditional turkey dinner was popularised in the Victorian period, but the turkey, as Tim talks about so beautifully in his piece, again, was only really for the very wealthy few. It was either going to be beef for most people or a chicken. And often, I mean, you talked about having a big chicken. I wondered mm. if it was a caponised chicken. Yes, when well, they were Probably. still caponisable, yeah, yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But, you know, for many people, chicken would have been quite sort of a bit mean and scrawny by mm. today's standards. Mm. So... You know, even the turkey is a very sort of recent recent tradition that's been available to everybody. But the Victorians were, were absolute masters at large-scale formal feasting. These were the guys who had sort of Rotarian dinners and, and council affairs and there were gentlemen's clubs and, and, and all sorts of organisations and they'd get together and have these very formalised meals. Were they on, joyful? Well, I think they just, had, they just had an enormous etiquette to them. And the particular thing where all, all this crashes together for me is, the, is particular the Cratchit's Christmas dinner in A Christmas Carol, because the really weird concept around that is what Scrooge does is pays for 
a really, really struggling, poor family with a sick kid to actually have the kind of meal that the local councillors would have had. It's a weird crashing up and mashing of putting this enormous spread, and particularly the sim- this symbolic bird, which was only really a, dis- a display piece that would only ever occur on a giant, giant meal. That kind of Dickensian version of Christmas, is when we talk about having a proper Christmas, is that still the kind of version that we look to now? You sort of talk about, you know, something having been lost in, in the piece in the 1960s compared to now, but I've eaten the same food at Christmas every year of my life. I feel like it's been fairly immune to sort of food fads and, and change of any kind. I think it's probably been immune to fads. I think for me, the thing that's changed a lot, and this may just be because, of, because I'm a greedy person, but I think we've lost a great deal of the, the specialness of the meal and particularly its excess. There's no lack of anything that we need coming into Christmas. And it's difficult to actually look at this meal and think, oh God, this is going to be the biggest and best meal I'm going to have all year. Because we have so much food now and food well, is relatively cheap. And- exactly. And, 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 and I suppose society, we've also turned round to the fact that we have that sort of fantasy echo thing of we're worrying about how much we're actually eating anyway. Is that to do with health or the environment? But to do with both, to do with both. But it's now impossible to sit around a table of, of eight people and not have at least two sort of major dietary exclusions and, and, and one person who's not eating for some other selective reason. And, and then after, you know, after all that's gone on, you have the meal. And instead of sitting back in a sort of slightly farting, eructating <laughs> happiness and go, God, that was the best bloody meal of the year. You go, oh, God, I've got to go out for a run. God, I won't be able to eat anything. Hey, let's just have a, let's have a dry January, which completely undermines minds the whole point of the annual and the festival. two and the two vegans you were dining with have also destroyed it for you anyway and you, oh, totally you've, yes. made you, you've made you feel like a <laughs> grotesque carnivorous slog <laughs> but i suppose the problem with that contention tim is that what that assumes is that you know if you only have one biscuit every year mm. that biscuit is going to be the most delicious mm. thing i mean it's going to be extraordinary if you're able to have a biscuit every day of the year it's not going to be such a special treat, but you'd still rather people had a, be able to have a biscuit. Oh, good lord! Yes, yes. Do you still don't. So that I, I suppose, the specialness, you know, the specialness of the Cratchit Christmas, is because they were hungry, and sure. so that is its kind of magic and its specialness. And the fact that we don't have quite the same relationship is probably, on balance, a good thing that most people can afford to have a really decent Christmas and that the rest of the year they're also eating well as well. I think to some extent sort of market forces has, in, in a weird way has answered this, this need. So the turkey market is really weird. Unlike every other nation in the world, we don't happily eat turkey all the way through the year. It's, oh, let's have a turkey burger, let's have some minced turkey. We just don't touch it. We breed these incredible number of these birds, which now... They, you know, they cost between 100 and 150 pounds for a reasonable sized, decent family turkey. We've taken actually quite a dull piece of poultry and turned it into this magnificent object that even with our current wealth, we can only afford the once a year. And we've, we've sort of recreated the notion of that. But it's one of the weird things about Christmas lunch or Christmas dinner that I just don't get. I just don't think tur- turkey tastes very nice. And, well, it, it is intriguing because if you actually ask the individual members of the family, you won't find anybody who will say, yum, turkey, yes, absolutely. But again, it's one of those traditions. But but the point of turkey as well, which is kind of a really strong part of Christmas, is the idea of leftovers, things being able to last over a number of days, people to be able to drop in after the on Boxing Day, the day after, and there be you know food to kind of go around to sort of share Mm. around, and that is a very Victorian sort of idea as well of the kind of you know sideboard groaning with food. The leftovers thing is absolutely fascinating. I mean, and each year it gets worse for food writers because they start hitting us around November 
people with requests for. Can you do the piece after Christmas about how to use your turkey leftovers? Pilaf oh, part five. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's banging on about how awful it is to have too many leftovers. Leftovers are kind it's of... The best bit. It's the best bit. And also, it's a weirdly modern notion, leftovers at all. You know, Surplus. There's, it would have been originally that you, you, know, you, you bought your joint and you were eating the remains of that joint through the week. There was no such thing as leftovers. It was all food and it all got eaten up and, and that was it. But this crazy idea that we somehow should feel guilty about the fact there are leftovers. This is what I can't mm. get into it. There's no, I don't know. I mean, if you if you have dinner with a, you know, a, a Jewish family or a Bangladeshi family or something like that and you turn up and they can't stop putting more food <laughs> on the table. And I know, you know, I, I haven't got, thank God, 2,000 years of diaspora to crowd out, but, you know, the, the plenty is the point. I mean, that's that's what it's, of course. So, so is this a generosity, yes, know, feasting, yes, yes. you know, warding away the risk of hunger, all these things are yeah. kind of at the heart of And Christmas. they haven't spent the last two weeks reading articles about what are we going to do about the leftovers? No! <laughs> Just so, buy so a turkey Is crowd. this a specifically, like, Western problem then? Or kind of the English tradition is particularly bad at sort of feasting and... I mean, you write about the idea of the guilty pleasure in your piece. It's a first world problem. I think also it's, it's where, at times, our sort of Northern European Protestantism does come into play. Can I just clear something up once and for all? Um, Tim, you've talked about this sort of cultural problem that we're guilt-ridden. We can't, as a nation, enjoy excess in the way that we might have in the 1960s. Can you just tell us once and for all, is that true in the Haywood household? I think, like every family, our specialist dysfunctions are those of balancing those needs. I think there's a certain amount of hand-wringing that goes on. It's usually kept away from me, um, and I will be reminded of my excesses, probably going on to around March. In, are you the spirit of verse. Christmas in I, that household? I'm, I'm pretty much, yeah. I'm pretty. I'm a jo- jocund sort of fellow, rosy-cheeked and sparkly-eyed, I try to be. Don't and you bile. too, Polly? No one has ever accused me of being joyful, happy or jocund. <laughs> I am <laughs> a little sour-faced. No, do you know what? I love, by the time Christmas actually happens, I love it. But I do sometimes call Christmas a woman's burden. Sorry, but around issues of Christmas presents, for example, which get delegated most often to the woman. And then there's the kind of the cooking itself and the provision. I bet in the Hayward household, maybe in yours as well, Al, it's probably very different. But for instance, in the 60s, I'd be interested to know how nostalgic would your mum have felt about Christmas Day? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting one. I think she stressed out about the cooking in quite a big way, although that probably didn't seem necessary because it was a very ramshackle affair when it actually when it actually happened. I mean, there were no expectations there. And I think her memory of it, maybe this is even a maternity thing, I don't know. She f- forgets how miserable each one is and then does it again the next year. It's like childbirth. And, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> this is like and, childbirth. And I do wonder. I mean, mum would have been the one who was the most misty-eyed about, about the thing that she'd just, having just been through combat, you know, she'd, she'd just do it again year after year after year. But you're right, it's, it is massively, massively gendered. It's just a lot of work. I mean, I'm sure all of you three are the chefs in the Christmas situation, but when you're um, the pot washer, I mean, it's just a lot of work. It's a lot of clearing up. <laughs> I mean, yes, Poor it's great, but also, I mean, I'm always trying to kind of pair things back. I'm always saying, like, shall we just buy the brandy butter? Shall <gasps> we? Shall... God, <laughs> I know, I could, three Dangerous of talk. Yeah. But, but I, I think we, I think I think we know. It's about cutting corners and making it manageable but, but, and having some but time is there off a, and watching TV. I, I, I wonder about my own slightly kind of grumbling and complaining up until the day because actually I sort of have this sense that the more effort I put in, the better 
the better I will feel about the end result. So, yeah. you know, there is a kind of Puritan sense in which, you know, the more I punish myself about how brilliant this Christmas has got to be. The more from the, scratchism you exactly, have. Exactly. Exactly. The more I have sort of made my own earthenware pot in order for the, you know, brandy butter to sit in, you know, the better the Christmas will be. And there is a way in which at the end of the day, when I'm slumped on the sofa and I think back about it, it is partly in relation to the amount of labour I've put in. So I'm afraid we're not buying your brandy butter. <laughs> but, but, but I think... I think my point is that that is the one time of the year you should be able to do that having cooked that hard and not being in a commercial kitchen. That should feel good because you volunteer to do it, you want to do it. There's a thing that, that, that sometimes happens when you're getting ready to, to sort of plate something up and somebody who will remain nameless will come into the kitchen and say something like, oh, you don't really want to do two different kinds of potato. You're such a fuss. Oh, my mother okay. does that That's me. The there's, 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 there's always somebody in every family who does it. And, and I, I get it. I get that, you know, less fuss is good. But not today. Today is the day when the fuss is the point. It is the point. Once. Just bloody once. But isn't this just partly about being, just being an adult and having responsibility? Isn't it just true that a six-year-old can enjoy... Christmas. So I was Better. thinking about Tim Spees and I was thinking, how could you empirically prove what he's arguing, which I think is a valid point. So I was thinking, you'd have to somehow set up a child of today, what their experience of Christmas is and how I measure it against uh, Tim Hayward as a little boy and try and measure those levels of, of joy and delight. Because I suspect that they would end up being pretty similar unless you want to argue that the child of the 1960s overall was sort of less indulged had less pleasures and therefore Christmas was much better in other words I think it is a state of childhood the pleasure that goes along because with we Christmas. believe in Father Christmas and things like that do you, know, from, do you do any cooking? <laughs> well they never do cooking. I pleasure. think it's the excess I think it's the idea of the kind of gifts that are absolutely central to it well, what do you think? Well, they're, they're getting the stuff all of the benefits of Christmas and they don't have any of the guilt the guilt is the adult problem that we add on to it. But so, they also have this magical creature, the Father Christmas, that it's absolutely central to me. <laughs> if, I, if I still believed in are Father you Christmas... Aware that it, you are aware he's not You are aware he's not. Right? Just, That's so, wait, this, is not this, this is not a studio for, for non-believers. <laughs> <laughs> the, actual, the actual magic of Santa, the believing in Santa thing, is really interesting. You've got a one-year-old, haven't you? So you've got all this yeah. stuff to come. I've got a 15-year-old. 14 who, and 10 year old right. twins. And I think non believers. Caught putting the presents in around the time she was three. I've never seen such phenomenal cognitive dissonance go on in a child's head. But she's perfectly capable of holding the two entirely opposing notions that Santa existed and that the presents have been put at the bottom of the bed by a mum. But were you wearing your suit? No. <laughs> <laughs> Undercover ninja Santa. But, 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 and, and the magic around Santa is not actually vested just in that strange belief. I mean, you're literally walking into the biggest, most generous, overloaded time of the year. And you're the kind of person that doesn't even realise they've got to clean up their socks and put them in the laundry basket at the end of the day. And you won't hit that moment for at least another 10 years, possibly 20. Optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> that's optimistic. So, so that's, that, that's why it is so completely magical. OK, finally, this Christmas, how can we for rediscover our childhood festive joy? Enormous quantities of booze. Well, yes. <laughs> that's no different to every weekend in our house. That's no different at all. I I think it is partly tapping into the kids. So I think it's about slowing everything down in the day. I think if you're still in pyjamas at, at 12, that's a good thing. I think that you 
have to add in a bit of Puritan torture for the children, which is you'd have to go for a walk before the presence. And this isn't for our joy, but that's to kind of that kind of draws out their own pleasure. That's longer. truly Victorian. Yeah, that's yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, and I think also making sure you're not nailed to the cross of martyrdom about Christmas, that you you are also a willing participant because you want to be. And the reason the day is panning out in the way it is is because you've been in charge of it, not because you've been forced to do it in this way. Unlike poor Grizz, who'll be chained to the, <laughs> kitchen. To the kitchen My granny sink. used to have a note pinned to her fridge which said, women and turkeys against Christmas. I always think of that. <laughs> Tim, final word from I, you? I, I th- Rediscovering I think, childhood joy. I think the answer has to be alcohol. I think I think you, you, you forget the responsibilities and you progressively lose bowel control. And I think that puts you back in the in, in the, the position of the of the infant who truly enjoyed it. Polly, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Okay, so we're in Borough Market, which is the most Christmassy part of the whole of London. I'm with Grizz, obviously. Al, you're about to go and talk to some stallholders. What are you going to ask them? Well, I want to know whether, you know, my theory is that Christmas was better when you were six, and I want to find out from these stallholders that are from all over the world the most amazing selection of food, from oysters and smoked salmon to Turkish delight and French pastries and food from Ethiopia all over the world and I want to find out was Christmas better when you were six years old let's go let's go so I'm Marianne I work in the cider house in Borough Market and Christmas was better when I was six because I didn't have to buy my own Santa presents (laughs) was Christmas food or drink better when you were six years old Ooh, it's better now why uh, alcohol I can have alcohol now and I get to choose what I eat for dinner. And I don't have to eat Brussels sprouts. And I don't have to eat bread sauce. It's all about getting pissed for you. Yes, basically. <laughs> Thank you very much. I work in the side. Hi, I'm Ella. I work on Alsop and Walker, British cheese stall in Borough Market. And Christmas was one million percent better when I was six. Because there was a lot of presents. <laughs> no one gives you presents now? Well, you know, maybe a couple. A pair of socks. And in terms of food? No, I suppose now I'm older, food is better. It's more about food these days, isn't it, as you're an adult? My name's Chris Stewart, and I'm the uh, proprietor of Taste Croatia Deli in Bar Market. Well, when you're you a child, I think Christmas is better for everyone. I think Christmas is about being a child, isn't it? I've got a six-year-old daughter now, and I can just see it in her face how magical Christmas is for her. We're writing a letter to Father Christmas tonight, in fact. Uh, making sure it gets posted by first class to number one Lapland, the North Pole. Do you still believe in Father Christmas? I definitely believe in Father Christmas. Too. And I believe in Father Christmas because I think all children should believe in the magic of Christmas. What do you think her favourite food for Christmas is? Anything related to cakes and chocolate. I'm Remy. I work at Barut, London British Borough Market, last 23 years. And why was Christmas better when you were six? Because I didn't have no responsibilities. Free. Now you're unhappy, yeah? Now I'm now. I got too many responsibilities. Do you still believe in Father Christmas? No. My name is Mian Vessel. I'm from Gujarati Razoi. Christmas is better now than it was when I was six years old. When I was six years old, my parents didn't really care so much about the gifts, and I'm Dutch, so I really like the presents. And now um, I'm starting to enjoy like spending time with family and stuff like that. Hello, I'm Alice Munro and I work on Wyndham House, Poultry, Specialist Stall in Borough Market. 
Christmas when I was six years old was much better because I had no responsibilities. I wasn't um, in charge of everyone's Christmas meals. I just wish I could be six again, really. Do you still believe in Father Christmas? Of course I do. Hi there, welcome to uh, Le Marché du Quartier, which is a duck confit store with a lot of French product. And my name is Vincent. I think Christmas was, is always better when you are a kid because at the time you don't have to buy any gifts. It's all coming, all the food is prepared for you, all the gifts are made for you. So it's a little bit more magic. But the good point is that later on you can have those mulled wine and, uh, and wine for Christmas. So it's also a good point later on. What was your favorite Christmas food when you were six years old? As, as I grew up in west of France, um, I love foie gras. When you were six years old? Yes. As soon as six years old, we taste all products. I was already dipping my lips into wine and beers at the time. That's French education. Okay, so next up, we've got Cyrus Toddywella. Al, can you tell me about him? Well, the first thing is that he arrived 45 minutes early for the interview, which is a record. It's stressful. People are early, actually, in life, isn't it? Well, it is. Because if you're like me, you're behind anyway. Yes, I've noticed that. Um, (laughs) Cyrus managed to do it in such a way that it wasn't at all stressful. He was very content to drink a cup of tea and, and, and read a book, which I think is slightly odd for a chef of his sort of caliber anyway, because, you know, he's distinguished. He's extremely busy. He's not just a chef and the owner of Cafe Spice Namaste, which is his sort of flagship restaurant near Tower Bridge. Um, he has lots of restaurants and he is involved in all kinds of projects to do with sustainability and nurturing new talent. In fact, he on the day that I interviewed him earlier this week, he had just come from St. James's Palace. He's a consultant with casually royalty. Um <laughs> But anyway, he he put me at my ease while we made him sit for 45 minutes. So how long, I mean, how, Cafe Namaste's been around for a while. Yes, it's been around for more than 20 years. So he's now a pretty big deal on the London food scene, is that right? Not just in London, but around the world. I mean, he's quite a big TV star. He's, he's involved in a number of charities and he's interested in you know, the provenance of the food that he uses. He works with the palace, as I said. I think he's sort of all-round good guy, apart from also being a great chef. Cyrus, thank you for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. What did you have for breakfast? Breakfast, usual. I do love my porridge. It's never The habits never left me. Mm-hmm. But I concoct my own porridge, of course. And so a bowl of porridge early. What time do I have my porridge? Maybe 7 o'clock or so. But you've been up since 4 a.m. Yeah, I generally wake up around 4, 4.15. Morning is the only time I get to catch up on a lot of emails and other things that's hanging around. When I hit the restaurant, then the day can take its own turn and you don't get much chance to do other things. Can a man who gets up at 4 a.m. be happy? Of course he can be happy. I'm always happy. I mean, the impression that many people will have of chefs is that they're stressed out, angry, well, if you let stress get to you, you will have a problem. I'm not just a chef, I'm a chef restaurateur. So mm-hmm. I have more tensions than a normal chef who just works for somebody. And I think if we let that come into our day-to-day life and, uh, and what you have in mind to do for the day, it could cloud everything. So I cannot allow that to happen. Is that something that you've learnt over time? You've been a chef for more than 40 years? Yes. Have you mellowed? 
I have matured rather than mellowed. I am still excitable. What happens when you? Well, I mean, excitable? I get I can get upset when people don't do things the right way, or they take shortcuts, or their customer is not important to them. But Are your uh, junior chefs frightened of you? I am not a fright frightening character. No, I think because most of the team is Asian, there is a different relationship in the Asian environment as opposed to the Western environment. and the asian environment always has a certain place for the boss it puts them in a box a sort of a pedestal which uh, is not necessarily fear as much as maybe respect let's go back a little bit you worked for the taj group yes. initially in yes. india you came here in 1991 yes you opened cafe spice namaste in 1995 1995 yes it's been going ever since yes. it continues to thrive through all that period in the 90s you were threatened with deportation by the home office yes. now however uh you are mbe obe you cook for the queen on her jubilee in 2012 you advise prince charles your relationship with the british establishment might be slightly emotionally confusing yes it is very confusing if you if you if you narrow it down or break it down it, it does become confusing but you never take that as offensive or you never take that as a insult you just take it as bureaucracy having uh, worked in a certain manner and you became a victim of that bureaucratic system did it affect the way you felt about being here i mean on a cold wet november morning like like it is today i would love to be in india did you nev- never think well i might just go back many times yeah many times because the pressure was so great at one time it turned my hair gray and my biggest fear was i have dragged my family into this how will i survive and what will i do and how will i look after them when and was the pressure at its greatest yeah there there those were very high pressure days and those were also the times when when the I home office were being particularly you? particularly persuasive mm-hmm. because i changed my my status from being an employee to an employer and uh, also at the same time we had no credit rating in the country it was at the height of the recession as well in the early 90s i was in a job one day and i was homeless and out of a job the next yet yeah, you suddenly won a car is that right yes to that, keep yourself afloat well i tell you yeah. what i mean that, that just made you aware that there is somebody up there who smiled at me at gave that, you a car at that critical yeah. moment i didn't bother to collect it I didn't wait to even get a fair price for it. All I needed was five thousand pounds to put down as deposit, and I gave away a fifteen thousand pound car for five thousand pounds. Madness. No. At that time, survival. Not madness. At no. that time, it was just the way to get my. So perhaps without that car, we wouldn't have Cafe Spice Namaste. We wouldn't have all your other restaurants. Well, possibly not. Yeah, and there's more happening now. So you see, the thing is moving on. Let's talk a little bit about your own cooking. Yeah. I've read that you never had any early ambition to be a chef, but I don't believe that. Oh really? I mean, I'm I must go back to my childhood, you see. Mm-hmm. When people ask me who was your first mentor, mum was. Every mum or every good home cook mother will have an influence on her family in some shape or form. I was highly asthmatic as a young child. I suffered a lot very acute asthma attacks as a result i had to skip a lot of school i spent a lot of time with mum and so the the way she kept me involved i would imagine is made me cook with her and i think the passion was there 
but it was not a passion for a career the indian uh, psych at that time of course nobody understood it chefs were never regarded for their skills or for their uh, enterprising attitudes or that they were people who meant something to society at least not in a society where i came from the parsi community which is a very flourishing very forward thinking very dynamic pioneering community even though we are tiny is there one dish that you remember your mother cooking that maybe lit some fire inside you my mother made the best dal in the world i mean every indian son would say that but my son told me that one day says your dal is fantastic but your mother's dal was better than yours and i think you are still a, great, a work in progress <laughs> that is a great compliment to me yeah, because i never want to equate to that she was never a trained uh, trained cook either how has your cooking changed since you know your early days in london or or even before to now i mean it's described variously as a cafe spice namaste as a fusion of parsi and french is that is that true wow i mean there's a lots of lots of things have been told to me actually but i'll tell you what happens is my early career was purely into classical french cooking and you trained in that specifically i trained in that specifically so i was trained in france i trained in switzerland i worked at the hilton on park lane was it was it easy to learn yes. <clears throat> these new techniques it, it is easy to learn for us because you are young you're hungry for knowledge you learn and there was a demand for that food in bombay in india at the time and then of course i realized one fine day that what do i know about india and what do i know about indian food and i took more interest when i was on deputation in goa i i loved the link between the uh, colonial influence on a cuisine of a local state so bombay was very much a colonial influence of the british but prior to the british the portuguese were in bombay and then the dutch were in bombay so goa was very portuguese influence and that led me to this discovery of more in depth into indian cuisine and i eventually transformed myself into moving away from classical french or western cuisine and i applied those techniques to my indian cuisine so for me it is very easy to play with ingredients from either side which is why cafe spice plays with ingredients that are non indian and that will be produced by any farmer anywhere in this country or europe and i will get excited with it and i will try and recreate something to fit within the indian you know sphere of cooking for example the latest on the latest menu is a product called chechi neri chechi neri is a black chickpea now india grows black chickpeas too but they're not as black as this black chickpea now i found that in a little town in italy on a recent visit in uh, puglia now it is not something that any indian restaurant will ever have or any indian chef would work with but i have gone far beyond my reach to see where i can source it from and bring it to my customers a new product altogether is and it important to constantly reinvent yourself like that yes i love it because... how many new dishes do you come up with say in a year oh boy i couldn't tell you but if you looked at my specialty menus over the last 25 years i say a few dishes have repeated themselves maybe five or six times and a menu has never repeated itself except on three or four occasions with that let's move on to i want to talk broadly about the world of restaurants at the moment yes is it easier now to be a, a young aspiring chef than it was in the early 90s 
125% if I could say more than 100%. It is. Today's youngsters need to realize that they are at the cusp of the greatest creative moment in history on food. And the world is at their feet if they only have the patience to exploit that. And yet, you've talked about the, the sheer dearth of chefs currently. Yes. What's wrong then? The industry of today is constantly discussing this issue that we have a skill shortage. I think we have to go back into various aspects of that. One of them is this very Britishness that seeps into the categories of class. We Indians suffer from that in a big way. In India, you have the class and you have the caste and you have the religion and you have various levels in between. But in Britain, just like in India, if you went 40 years ago, the chefing profession was not recognized the way it is recognized today. You have said recently that the industry is a great place to work. Is that true if you're a woman? 100%. Today, yes. There are two differences in culture today now. If you looked at women maybe 25 years ago, there was the family and woman was expected purely to concentrate. Today, a woman can run a career side by side. There are some fabulous examples within our industry of women who have achieved greatness. They but sometimes at the expense of great misogyny within the kitchen. We've had a lot of Me Too last year. but And also, is it not broadly agreed that it's very difficult, the hours are very, very difficult for particularly, say, a young mother to rise very high in a restaurant because of the way the system, which is dominated by men, has figured itself out. Excellent point, but not anymore. There's a work-life balance. Okay. Every employer today, hopefully, but the majority will, try to make the best use of your spare time and allow you the freedom that you desire. There are moments when that cannot happen, and there are moments when the employer expects that you understand the situation and make some other arrangements. But I know for a fact, we have two women working with us. They come and tell us, chef, we cannot work after nine o'clock. That's fair enough. So what we try and do is we try and readjust the movement of staffing so that somebody fits in the role after nine o'clock and you go away at nine o'clock. What is the ratio of women to men in your kitchens? It's still very poor because we're an Asian restaurant in the first instance. I wish I could attract Western women or men even because they feel that our Asian restaurants are close to outsiders, but they're not. Everybody should get an opportunity to learn. At the moment, we have three women working. Of course, my wife, very important individual in Cafe Spice. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about the future. Yep. Specifically, the future of food and feeding the world. In maybe in five years' time, we'll all have to eat maggots and things like this, no? I think you, all, you are underestimating faith in man and his creativity, if we speak like that. Yes. But eating maggots and bugs is also part of creativity. Yes. At the moment, it is just fashionable. It is an alternative source of protein. And then again, on the flip side of that, the world is moving more towards vegetables and vegan food and eating less animal produce. So on the one side, the, the meat-eating man is considered a monster and the vegetable-eating person is looked at the savior. On the flip side of that, if a world goes totally vegan or vegetarian, hundreds of thousands of acres of rainforest will be chopped down to create more plantations. How man will control that? Vegan, we could also save roughly the size of the African continent and land that is used for animals now. 
Yes, but there is an argument on both sides of that equation. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Uh, the question is, it's not the deforestation that bothers me. It is the rapid increase that bothers me about what kind of pesticides, what kind of chemicals, what kind of fertilizers are going to be Im impregnated into my atmosphere, into the soil to produce food, to feed these new fads. Four thousand farmers a week were committing suicide in India because of that. Their lands are lying in waste because of excessive farming. And that is a figure that the world is not aware of. There has to be a cleaner debate on this. Animal husbandry isn't bad. Man has forever been eating animals. But that does not mean that that is bad. What it should be that we have to draw an equation on a balance. We should eat less meat. We should eat good. We should look at anything and everything that is on our plate to come from very sustainable, very well-farmed resources. What is the one ingredient that you would say is essential to the cooking of Cyrus Taliwala? Well, I am known for two things as ingredient terms. I love my cardamom and I love my fresh coriander. Why? There are three or four things, cumin, coriander and fresh coriander that I find create something that ticks off in my brain that says now that food is going to be liked by the people I'm going to feed. I abide by that and I have to control myself sometimes because it can become obsessive to a degree at times. My wife will tell me clearly, or son rather, he says to me, oh no cardamom this time dad. I said no cardamom this time dad. Oh how strange is that? <laughs> so it's like that. But uh, I am like that, yeah. And I hope, I mean, it transpires into the cuisine in a different form or the new restaurant we're opening in in South Keys, you know, at the yes. Lincoln Plaza. Again, there will be a new set of people there. So I have to make sure my menu is interpreted in the right way. At the the new food will Mr. be the same style? It'll be the same style, but Mr. Todewala's kitchen, so in Lincoln's Plaza, uh, Cafe Spice, I started off with giving nice big descriptions on the menu. So people know who my supplier is, mm -hmm. where that food came from and what it means. And I think I want to introduce that into the new menu at Lincoln Plaza. So there'll be a new set of people experiencing our cuisine. And the cuisine has to be created that banishes all these preconceptions about Indian cuisine, greasy, oily, unhealthy, it cannot be. Indians cannot be eating unhealthy food and still mass producing in our population. The oldest historical facts about spices and health benefits, and we don't exploit that. I've heard that you believe in the medicinal benefits of spices. I, I totally believe in it. And I've been helping so many friends with certain ailments. And I think the whole thing has to be more deeper understood. That Indian food was never created for what it was processed in Britain for. Indian food was all about, if you go back to 323 BC, when Hippocrates visited India for the first time to see about the philosophy behind the Hindu culture at that time. And he came back and he made a very strong statement and he said, after returning from India, what he has come to believe is, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And that is the basis upon which Indian food was created. So if you treat food as medicine, then that medicine will look after you. Ayurveda believes very strongly that every root cause of illness in the human body starts with the stomach and what we put into it. 
Is this something that has grown inside you or you have always felt that? My father was a very strong follower and um, he had this huge encyclopedia. And dad was very, very systematic. At 97, he could give me a whack and I would be flat on my face, I think. He was very, very strong. I think uh, it's just the way the discipline has set in him. And we got a bit of that. And I, I grew up with that. So every time I made something, I asked him, he said, you cannot mix these two together. And I think we need to understand a bit more of that and how we can balance the food so people enjoy it. They walk away happy, satiated and feeling good. Is it true that you hate aubergines? I don't hate aubergines. The aubergines hate me. Okay. They didn't like my dad. They don't like my sister. They don't like me. And But I still make my aubergine pickle. I pop two antihistamines in my mouth and I go taste it. And then I have to sleep for half an hour because I'm drowsy. Cyrus Todiwala, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you'll come with me to Cafe Spice Namaste. I will. Gladly. Good. (laughs) Um, We will post a link to Tim's piece about the ghost of Christmas past on our Facebook page. Though, if it's possible, it looks even better in print, so you should dash out and buy your FT weekend. Today, if you're listening on Saturday, the 1st of December? Yes. Correct, Chris. It's the 1st of December. <laughs> Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Facebook.com slash everything else podcast, or you can email us at everything else at ft.com. And if you like what you hear, then please subscribe. We have some really good episodes upcoming, and we would not want you to miss one. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizz and Al. Happy first birthday to Rufus. And our music is sung by Marilyn Monroe. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to you.